Well, this morning, we're going to begin a new study, a new book. And uh, I'm going to see if you catch this, but I want you to turn to the first gospel that's found in the Bible. And immediately, you're wanting to turn to Matthew. The first gospel written was Mark. So let's turn to Mark. In fact, the time of uh, the writing of Mark, there was only two other books in existence as far as the New Testament. You had Galatians and James. And James was the, uh, the older of the three. So you have the first gospel being Mark. So this morning we're going to begin a study of this gospel. And it's 16 chapters. But to begin our study, I'm only going to begin with verse 1 because I would like to take some time and introduce the book to you. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as we begin this, we are introduced right here in this first verse to what many have referred to as a title to the book. If you'll notice the title on the screen... That's where it's coming from, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that title, it summarizes the entire gospel of Mark. It describes the entire work of Jesus Christ. It's the history of Jesus' earthly ministry It's the history of his teaching. It's the history of his death. It is the history of his resurrection. What you're holding in your hand is a factual record. It's not only the record here, but also in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. All were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew and John were apostolic witnesses to the events that they wrote about. According to Luke 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke thoroughly investigated the details of our Lord's ministry in order to produce his testimony. And according to early church tradition, Mark wrote his gospel based on the preaching of Peter. So this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it can't be confined to the ministry of John the Baptist, which he mentions in verses 2 and following, because it goes far beyond his preparatory work. Neither is it closely connected grammatically with the verses that follow. This is a message about Jesus Christ. Mark doesn't include what the other gospel writers include as the beginning. They begin with the birth of Christ. He begins with a declaration. And then he mentions John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ. R.C. Sproul says the fact Mark gives us are included to demonstrate two things. Jesus is the promised Messiah and the Son of God. Mark makes this affirmation here at the beginning of his work. That's the thematic statement for the entire gospel. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ starts here in verse 1, and it's given a royal declaration that Jesus is what? What's the rest of the verse? He is the Son of God. In other words, he cuts to the chase, and he states this right at the beginning. Now, as we go through this, there are some things that I want us to look at that will introduce us to this gospel, but then as we bring it to a close this morning, I want to give some principles that we can learn from Mark himself. As he begins, we see there that he tells us that this gospel is about Jesus Christ. That phrase, of Jesus Christ, in Greek is called an objective genitive. An objective genitive here is telling us that this is about 
Jesus Christ. This is the glad news. This is the good news that tells us about Christ. He's the subject of all four Gospels. That's exactly what Mark's Gospel presents. And if Mark intended his work to have a title, here it is. This is about Jesus. Now, as we go through this, too, I want you to to keep in mind that in your personal life, if you feel like that you have been just kind of going through the motions, I guarantee you studying this gospel will change it. You cannot study about Christ and remain as you are. You cannot remain the same, even as a child of God. You know, maybe you've been many years into being a believer and maybe you've, you've struggled with some of the joy. Maybe you don't have as much joy as when you started because you know how it works. We see a person come to Christ and they're just exuberant with joy and they're praise the Lord, praise the Lord, this and that. And then after a few months, the praise the Lord's kind of die down and they end up stopping. Why is that? I mean, I'm like you. I'd like for that to stay. I'd like that exuberant joy to remain. Well, it can, if your focus is on Christ. I mean, our life is all about Jesus. But unfortunately, we live our lives many times for us. And so everything begins to turn back to us. And as Mark presents, the implications are here for us that Jesus is not a mere man. He is the Son of God. And we're going to talk about the implications of that phrase right there and what all it means. But as we look at this, let's narrow in on the gospel itself. That word euangelion is commonly translated good news. You might have that in your translation. It appears about seven times in this gospel. It appears four times in Matthew. It doesn't even appear at all in its noun form in Luke and John, but we do find its verbal form in those two books. Matthew uses it only one time, but Luke uses it about ten times. Now, when you begin to chase around that word, the etymology of that word, you find in both the Old Testament as well as in Greek literature that that word, euangelion, was commonly used of reports of victory from the battlefield. When the Philistines defeated the troops of Saul on Mount Gilboa, it says that they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news among the people. And the word news is where we get euangelion. And even the messenger who had brought that report, he was the deliverer of good news. David said in 2 Samuel 4.10, he said, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, he thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. You say, wow, that good news from that gentleman turned into horrible news, did it not? When you chase this around among the Greeks, the term was used of victory in battle as well, but it also had other forms of good news. For example, in, in 9 BC, within a decade of Jesus' birth, you had the birthday of Caesar Augustus. He was held as a euangelion. His birth was held as good news. And since he was held as a god, his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Over in the Greco-Roman world, the word always appeared in the plural, meaning one good tiding among others. But when you come into the New Testament, euangelion appears only in the singular. And why is that? Because it is the good news of God in Jesus Christ, beside which there is no other. So in Mark's understanding, the gospel is more than a set of truths or even a set of beliefs. It is a person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So the announcement of Jesus is good news. Good news is found not only in how he lived and what he said from the Father, but also in his name. The name Jesus is the transliterated form of the Hebrew word Jehoshua or Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. The title, and I say that specifically because Christ is not his last name, it's not even a name, it is a title. And in Greek, it means anointed one, Christos. It's also the transliteration of the Hebrew, Mashiach. Mashiach is Messiah. So what he is saying here, this is the beginning of Jesus, who is the anointed one, the Messiah. That is good news. And the good news is, is that Jesus Christ saves from sin. He is the anointed one. He is the promised Messiah. Now notice the bold statement that he gives at the end of verse 1. And this gives us the person of the book, again, being Christ. Mark says Jesus is the Son of God. Luke includes this phrase in the genealogy of Mary in Luke 3:38. But the greatest source is God. God himself. Mark records this. Look down at verse 11. He says a voice came out of the heavens, "You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased." So Mark says that Jesus is the son of God. But what does God say? He says, you are my beloved son. And he's saying that to him. And that was at his baptism. In fact, Mark mentions it again over in Mark 9, 7, and this is at the transfiguration. It says, then a cloud formed overshadowing them. A voice came out of the cloud, and it said this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So when you look at this title, the Son of God, the reality is that the Father saw Jesus as his Son in the flesh. And the Lord Jesus saw himself as the Son, and God was his Father. That name, or that phrase, it speaks of his lineage, it speaks of his right to rule. Jesus is one in nature with God. He is co-eternal. He is co-equal with the Father. And for those Roman pagans who had wrongly regarded Caesar as a god, Mark is introducing them to the true divine king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what's the beauty about this? You can do what the reformers called analogia scriptura, which, we, which basically means the analogy of scripture, and this is where you cross-reference. And this is everywhere. Others recognize this. You remember Nathaniel, when Jesus met Nathaniel, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel marveled at that, and he said in John 1.49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. That famous declaration, Matthew 16, after Jesus had asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And hear that. Hear that phrase right there, because everything that we find in the Word of God, God has to reveal it to you. He has to make it plainly known to your heart. And that is His work. He illumines understanding. There was another situation in Matthew 14 where the other disciples 
made that same bold declaration. They said, you are truly God's son. And that came on the heels of after seeing him be awakened by them with a storm going on around them. And they were like, Lord, do you even care that we're going to perish? He wakes up. He looks at the wind and the sea. You know what he does? He says, hush. Be quiet. Immediately, it stops. The storm stops. So let me ask you this question. What's worse, having a storm outside the boat or having the God of all creation in the boat? Because they marveled. You certainly are God's son. That was one of the many times that they would say something like that. But you know, even the demons recognize Jesus as the son of God. Over in Matthew 8, 29, they said this to Jesus, What do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. And I find that very interesting because false teachers are driven by demons. They're driven by Satan. And what do false teachers do? They deny the divinity of Jesus. And the very thing that they deny, the very demons from hell affirm. Because they can't deny it. They're subject to his authority. You even find the angels, of course, recognizing this. And all demons are, are fallen angels. But we find over in Luke one thirty-five, when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son. And as I said earlier, Jesus understood this. When you find him praying in John 17, and by the way, this is a passage that Jehovah's Witnesses try to use to diminish or to deny the Trinity because they say when Jesus is praying, who's he praying to? What's the simple answer? He's praying to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And when he prays, he says that. He says, Father... The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so this is not just a title that others have said about Him. This was true reality. God was His Father. Jesus, according to the flesh, is His Son. Now, you and I read that. I don't think we have a problem with that. But it did generate a lot of controversy in the 4th century. And that was because there was a man named Arius. Arius was a false teacher. He said Jesus was a created being. What's that sound like? Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing. R.C. Sproul says, references to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15, and the only begotten of the Father, John 1.14. It led Arius to argue that Jesus had a beginning in time and was thus a creature. So in Arius's mind, if Jesus was begotten or if he was created, it could only mean that he was not eternal. And if he was not eternal, then he was a creature. Again, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses declare today. And so he believed if you ascribed deity to Jesus, you were then guilty of blasphemy because it involved the idolatrous worship of a created being. But beloved, Jesus was not created. Jesus is the creator. And I think Scripture is very clear about that. When you go to Colossians 1.15, there's a term called prototokos in Greek, and it's translated in many cases first or firstborn. But I submit to you that the word 
doesn't just mean that. The word also means preeminent. And we could demonstrate that very easily with the Scripture. He is the preeminent one. And all things came into being by Him. That's John 1, 2. And without Him, nothing has come into being. But let me just give you the implications of this title. Give you the implications of what Mark is saying here. As he begins this gospel and referring to Jesus being the Son of God. That phrase, the Son of God, refers to Jesus' deity. What do I mean by that? It's telling us Jesus is God. He's divine. This is what I referred to a moment ago as the eternal sonship. In the book, Biblical Doctrine, a Systematic Summary of Bible Doctrine, edited by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, it writes that this view rests on the observation that the title Son of God, when applied to Christ in Scripture, seems to always speak of His essential deity and absolute equality with God, not His voluntary subordination. I agree with that. And the reason why I would say that is because the Jewish leaders understood it that way. Over in John 5.18, they sought the death penalty against Jesus, charging him with blasphemy because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, in that culture, you had a dignitary's adult son who would be deemed equal in stature and privilege with the father. And the same deference demanded by a king was even afforded to his adult son. Because the son was of the very essence of his father. He was heir to all the father's rights. He was heir to all of the privileges. And so he was equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called the son of God, it was understood categorically by all as a title of deity, declaring him equal with God and more significantly of the same essence as the Father. So, beloved, from the very first verse that's used here in Mark's gospel, we're introduced to the divinity of Jesus Christ. And as I said, this is a bold declaration that Mark begins. He just cuts to the chase. And if you have read with us this month the gospel of Mark, didn't you notice how quickly it goes? Did you notice how it moves from one scene to another scene to another scene to another scene? It's a very action book. Moving from scene to scene. This is why with this phrase, the Son of God, the Jewish leaders consider it high blasphemy when Jesus would say that God was his Father. But it was true. Couldn't be denied. Now, there were other titles, and there are other titles in the Scripture, but let me give you a few titles that Mark also gives in this gospel. In chapter 10, verses 47 and 48, Mark uses the title, The Son of David. In chapter 15, verse 32, he uses the title, King of Israel. In chapter 2 and verse 10, as well as verse 28, he's called the Son of Man. In chapter 1 and verse 24, he's called the Holy One of God. In chapter 2 and verse 28, he's called the Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 5 and verse 19, he's called Lord. In chapter 15, verse 2, he's called the King of the Jews. What a monumentous title. What a monumentous book. Now, you'll notice as we've been looking at this verse, most of the time when you look at an epistle in the New Testament, what does it tell you? What tells you the author? Gives you the name. But you find no name here. In fact, the inscription of the book 
All it says in Greek is according to Mark. Didn't tell you which Mark. Mark's a pretty common name. I think it would have helped us if it would have said John Mark. But let me give you some information about the author. When you look at the four Gospels, you find that no author is given. Out of all of them. While the story of Matthew's conversion and Matthew's inclusion among the apostles appears in Matthew, Matthew never says he's the author. Luke never appears in his gospel at all, nor does he claim to be the author of it. John never refers to himself by his name or as the author. He always uses some descriptive title like the one whom Jesus loved. However, we still know that Mark wrote this, that Matthew wrote his, that Luke wrote his, that John wrote his. That's the universal testimony of the early church going all the way back to the first century. In fact, our most ancient testimony about who wrote the second gospel comes from Papias. He was the bishop of Hierapolis. He was also a disciple of Polycarp. Anybody know who Polycarp is? Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. Writing in 140 A.D., Papias said this, The elder, and many believe that's referring to John, because you remember in 2nd and 3rd John, that's how he identified himself. He says, The elder used to say this also, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that Peter remembered concerning the things both said and done by the Lord. Now, this quote was actually preserved by the 4th century writer Eusebius of Caesarea in his ecclesiastical history. So this has been preserved from all this time to today. But he's not alone here. For example, Justin Martyr, he wrote around 150 A.D. He referred to the Gospel of Mark as the memoirs of Peter. He also suggested that Mark wrote his Gospel while in Italy. Where is Italy at? It's in Rome. And so this agrees with early tradition. Early tradition says this Gospel was written in Rome for the benefit of the Roman Christians. Irenaeus, he was writing about 185 A.D., he called Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter. He also said the second gospel consisted of what Peter preached about Jesus. So the testimony of the church fathers, it differs as to whether this gospel was written before or after Peter's death, but you have other church fathers as well that refer to this as being John Mark. For example, you have Origen. He lived around 230. You had Clement around 300. You have Eusebius around 362. And they all say the same thing, that John Mark is the author of this gospel. So who is John Mark? John Mark, his name appears about five times in the New Testament. The first three references include the names John and Mark. Twice he's called John. In three other places, he's referred to as the Latin Marcus. John was his Hebrew name. It's pronounced Yohanan. And it basically meant Yahweh has shown grace. You know, in the Bible, names were very significant and they had meaning uh, very good meaning at that but it meant Yahweh has shown grace as I said Marcus or Mark that's the Latin name it actually means a large hammer now why they would name him that could be through his boldness as he would preach it would come down like a large hammer but you know, it wasn't uncommon for first century Jews to bear a Greek or a Roman name in addition to their Hebrew name. You remember Paul was called what? Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. 
Some believe that Paul had something to do with telling us a little bit about his physical stature because the word Paul means small. That maybe he was a small individual. One writer believes that the Roman name Mark was perhaps a badge of Roman citizenship as like in Paul's case. Or it was adopted when he left Jerusalem to serve the Gentile church in Antioch. But his first appearance is only by inference. And it's found in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. The story goes there in Acts 12. Peter had been released from prison. He was led out of the city by an angel. Verse 11 tells us, When he came to himself, he said, Now, truly I know that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Then verse 12, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. That's the first appearance of John Mark's name. Alongside his mother talking about the church gathering at her house. See, back then, before the third century, that's how churches met. They met in homes. So this whole phenomena today of churches meeting in homes, house churches and so forth, that's not new. That's how it all began. Did any of you ever had a house church, had a church meet in your house? I have, about three times. And uh, it's much different than, than meeting in a building. But nevertheless, you've got to meet somewhere. Now, Mark was not a pastor. Mark was not a preacher. Mark was not an elder in the church. According to Acts 13 and verse 5, Mark was a helper. It says, And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Now, I don't know exactly what all he did. Maybe he recorded things. Maybe he assisted people that needed help. Either way, he was a helper. I mean, you know what it's like if you're in a room and you have kids and you want mom and dad to hear it. Maybe he was a helper and he went over there and took the child and just kind of held him and like she's doing right now and walked around. And We do that, don't we? We try to be helpers. Now, if I could encourage you at this point, it would be with that little phrase, helper. Because sometimes we feel like unless we're somebody important, then we're nobody. That is not true. We all are part of the body of Christ, and we all have roles. And our roles differ. <coughs> And our involvement may differ. But all of us have the Spirit of God as children of God. And all of us have been given spiritual gifts by which we can minister to the body of Christ. So whether you understand your gift, we all help. We all assist in one way or another. <coughs> I might be the pastor but I also seek to be a helper too. So Mark helped Paul and Barnabas. He helped them on their first missionary journey. But I want to show you something that is not helpful. Or maybe it could be. And let me have you to turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and I want you to look at verse 13. Acts 13, 13. Listen to what it says. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. They came to Perga in Pamphylia. Here it is. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He went back home. I'll give you another term for left. He deserted them. So what little bit that we do know about him 
This part about him, maybe we wish we never knew. But then again, it could be an encouragement to you as well. Maybe there's been those days when you felt like leaving, or maybe you have left in your heart sometimes. I mean, doesn't Jesus say to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, you have left or deserted your first love? Anytime that you put anything or anyone above Christ, you have left your first love. And what did Jesus say to, say to the church at Ephesus? He said, repent and go back and do the first works. Go back and do the things you did in the beginning. You know, when you had all the joy and all the excitement that I was talking about a while ago, that same joy and excitement that a new believer has when he comes into the church and he becomes the joy and the exuberance for the church, but it shouldn't be just on a new convert. He should see that joy and excitement coming from the aged saints, those believers who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And beloved, if you're not joyful... You have no joy. You have the wrong perspective of life. You're confused. And I want to clear up that confusion right now. Because everything about you, everything about me, is to be centered on Christ. What does it mean when you say He is my Lord? Everything about Him is your life. But if you put other things before Him, can you keep making that claim, He is your Lord? If you put other things before Him, no wonder why you don't have any joy. You know, we're told in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord. And Paul repeats it again, I will say, rejoice. And you remember when we were going through Isaiah 6... And we saw that little phrase, holy, holy, holy. And we saw that the emphasis of mentioning it three times was for that purpose of emphasis that the Lord is holy. The same is true when you see Philippians 4.4. 4. To say rejoice twice is trying to point out to you that this is essential. But you have to guard your mind. Or you're not going to be able to rejoice. Your mind's going to be on other things. Let me have you to turn to Philippians 4. Let's notice what he says after that. And by the way, the rejoicing here is the theme of the entire epistle. When we refer to Philippians, we refer to it as the epistle of joy. But notice what he says in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That means he's, he's right there at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Are you stressed? Are you stressed? Do, do you worry? You worry about your life? You worry about things? You stressed out about your life? You stressed out about your job? Stressed out about your kids? Stressed out about your home? Stressed out about your car? I mean, the list is unlimited, is it not? There are 100,000 things that can stress us out. But what does he say? Be anxious for nothing. Here's how it reads in Greek. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. You know what the remedy is for stress and worry and is prayer. And it's not just prayer, it's thankful prayer. What's the difference? Well, there's different kinds of prayers but being thankful. And what's he say in verse 7? What's the promise? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard means to be an umpire. It will umpire your life. But you've got to do verse 8, or that will never happen, verses 4 through 7. You've got to think the right things. 
most of the time we don't think the right things. And we have a lot of things out there that tell us what to think. If you watch TV, you get what my kids used to call curse commercials. They couldn't say commercials, so they said curse commercials. And I thought that is the best title for that because that's what they are. They curse you, don't they? And every time you watch one, you feel like you have the wrong everything that you possess because that's what they're trying to do is to make you feel like you need their product. So they make you feel like you know, you've been left out of something. But you've got to think on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely, things that are commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And he says when you do this, verse 9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen, if you practice them, the God of peace will be with you. So in other words, you're thinking on these things. You're looking at the Apostle Paul for the example of his life. And you do it. You know, this is one of my little pet peeves in the church. I'll tell you what it is. All my Christian life, and this started very early, I would look at things that the church is doing, and I'd look at the Bible, and I'd say, well, one, they're doing things that don't even say anything in the Bible to do, or they're ignoring the Bible. And that drives me crazy. Because aren't we called to be obedient to the Word of God? I see churches, how they're structured. They're not structured biblically. They don't function most of the time biblically. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not the answer here of everything. <laughs> but I do have the answer right here. But I tend to see that a lot. Churches say that they want to be biblical, but then they omit things that are clearly biblical. Rejoice in the Lord. Do it all the time. And the reason why you can do it all the time, because the Lord is near. Because our Messiah has come. Our Savior has come. Just that truth alone should produce so much joy in your life that you never have time to be sad, stressed, worried. See, again, if you don't have joy, you're miserable, how are you going to be a helper? If you're miserable, how are you going to minister? Oh, I want to tell you to read your Bible, but you know what? Uh, it's so hard because there's so much stuff there I don't understand. It takes forever to read it. But you need to read your Bible. <laughs> that didn't sound too uh, encouraging. <laughs> right? This is why I was pursuing and have pursued encouraging you this year to read your Bible like you've never read it before. You say, well, I'm reading my Bible. And here was my little thing to stick on the end. Read it more. We don't read it enough. You know, how, you know how I know we don't read enough? Because we don't always live it. If you read it all the time, it's always in your mind. But again, unfortunately, Acts 13 tells us he deserted. And this caused a lot of problems. If you and I understood how much people depend on us, I think we would watch more closely how we behave. Because when Barnabas wanted Paul to take John Mark on the second missionary journey, Paul said no. We depended on him once. He deserted us. In fact, the, the friction that resulted from that between Paul and Barnabas led to their separation. Listen to this, Acts 15, beginning at 38. But Paul kept insisting, 
that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there was a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So this desertion here was huge. It was big. But I will tell you this, this is not the last thing we learn about him. It doesn't stop right there. And praise God, it doesn't stop. Because you know what? He came back. And I think it has to do with his earlier indecisiveness. It ended up giving way to great strength and maturity. And in time, he proved himself even to Paul who didn't want to have anything else to do with him. Now, beloved, I understand that. You invest in people. You pour out your life into people. And then they do something like this. It makes it hard to pick up the pieces. But we do find when Paul wrote Colossians, he instructed them that if John Mark came, they were to welcome him. Colossians 4.10. See, something happened. Something changed. And the change began with the one who deserted. He came back. He repented. And because he repented, Paul welcomed him, received him. And you know, beloved, this is the way church discipline works. Though this is not church discipline, but really kind of a form of it. But this is really how it works. When a person refuses to repent and they're put out of the church and say they eventually do repent, what happens? You bring them back. You welcome them right back in. We find in the book that we read this morning, Philemon, verse 24, it lists Mark as a fellow worker. A fellow worker. And even later, Paul told Timothy this, 2 Timothy 4.11, Get Mark! And bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. See, just in those moments when you think just everything is falling apart. Well, maybe it has. But you make your way back. You come back. God restores you. And many times to an even greater opportunity. Take Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. The last scene we have of Peter before... Christ dies on the cross as Peter's warming his hands there at fire. And they said, you're one of them. Your voice gives you away. Your speech gives you away. And he denied it. Vehemently denied it. And then when he heard that rooster crow, he went out and wept bitterly. He had a totally different response than Judas had. Judas, he wept too. But Judas, he went out and killed himself. He went out and committed suicide. Peter, he went out and wept bitterly, but he was restored as well. You ever been in those situations? So some believe that John Mark's restoration to useful ministry may have been in part due to the ministry actually of Peter because they were close. It says in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter refers to Mark as my son. It'd be a spiritual son. Now, the dating of this letter is somewhat interesting, but many date it beginning in the 50s. They go all the way up to the 70s. It's most likely it was about late 50s. Somewhere between 50 and 60, you have Matthew's gospel. Somewhere around 60 and 61, you have Luke's gospel. John's gospel came around about 90 A.D. And you can actually slip Mark in between Matthew and Luke. So somewhere between uh, in the late 50s. But again, that's even questionable. Especially since I said this was the first gospel. So the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark to believers in Rome 
using Peter as his primary source. R.C. Sproul even adds that the audience is Christians suffering persecution in Rome under Nero. And the reason why he's going there is because of his close connection to Peter. And when Peter wrote, and you remember when we went through 1 Peter, what was going on? Persecution. It was persecution under Nero, right? But as the dust begins to settle in your mind of all that we've said this morning, I want to give you a few principles that you can glean from the life and the ministry of John Mark. And here they are. First is this. Ministry will test you. Ministry will test you. It will test your faithfulness. When everyone or everything is against you, it'll test you on whether you're going to push through it, like Mark did, or whether you're going to leave. Ministry is tough. It's extremely hard. I don't know a pastor on the planet who hasn't struggled with ministry, or anybody in the ministry for that matter, who hasn't struggled, or who hasn't struggled with the desire to leave. In fact, uh, we used to have a little statement that circulated around the church. It said, you know, you, on Monday, that's when the pastor resigns. He resigned every Monday. And then he rejoined on Tuesday. <laughs> so ministry will test you. Did it not test him? Yeah, it did. Unfortunately, he failed the test. But he came back. Praise God that God gave him a second chance, right? And if this describes you this morning, God welcomes you back. You've got to repent. Second, I would say, ministry is difficult. It is difficult. It can take you places that you don't want to go. It can introduce you to people that you otherwise would never meet. It could put you in situations that you'd never be in. It could force you to take views that you never thought you'd have to take. It would force you to study out things that you never thought you'd have to deal with. I mean, I've heard John MacArthur talk about he didn't really understand after 50 years of doing it that he'd spend his life defending the gospel. See, it demands everything from you. Physically, mentally, spiritually. And I'll give you an example of that. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 8, it says, Paul says, In every way, afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Did you see those two words, always and constantly? Yes. If we had the time, I'd tell you about my checkered past as a pastor. But we're not going to go there. Third, I would say, ministry brings humility. There's the temptation to be prideful with all the truths that you're learning. So guess what? What does God do when you get like that? He humbles you. I remember I was sitting in the parking garage at First Baptist Church getting ready to go into a pastor's conference, and I was listening to a message on 2 Corinthians 12. As I was listening to that, I was having a lot of difficulty in the particular church I was in, and I sat there and I was weeping over what I was hearing because you know what I heard? Let me read the passage first, and then I'll tell you what I heard. In 2 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 7, Paul said, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The message on that tape was this. Tells you how long ago it was. It was a tape. (laughs) God will destroy a church for the whole purpose of humbling its pastor. I couldn't believe what I just heard. What? Let that sink in for a minute. As you're going through a very difficult time in ministry. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.3, he had to tell Timothy this, Suffer hardship with me. We know Paul's life. We see it. The persecution, the suffering, the beatings. In one case, he was left to be dead. That leads me to the fourth principle. Ministry is stressful. It's the highest stress in my life. I remember going to the doctor one time. He told me, he said, you've got to find a way to uh, not be so stressed. And I just started laughing. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Do you know what I do? What about you? <laughs> I turned it on him. What about you? Isn't your life stressful? Isn't your job stressful? He's a physician, yeah. There are times when your motives will be questioned, like Paul's were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I understand what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight when he said that he had the daily pressure of concern for the churches. And he had churches, plural. I only have this church. That doesn't take into consideration the weekly stress of preparation. Sermon preparation to me is really the hardest task. That's the stressful task. One of the stressful tasks in my life is sermon preparation. But you know what? I identify with one of the giants who said the same thing. I came across this quote by Charles Spurgeon some time ago. I wrote it in the flyleaf of my Bible to remind me. He said this, I scarcely even prepare for my pulpit with pleasure. Study for the pulpit is to me the most irksome work in the world. Spurgeon preached six, seven, eight times a week. He would prepare his Sunday night sermon Sunday afternoon. How else are you going to prepare? You know what some pastors do? They'll go back to the archives. I could do that. I've got almost 40 years of archives, but I don't want to do that. I want to be fresh. I want to study something new. You know, I have books that I have taught on many times that I've never taught here. I could easily adopt that for our next book study and just have a smooth sail for a year or so. But it doesn't work that way. Fifth, fifth principle is ministry brings rejection, persecution, and ultimately death. Anybody ready to sign up? Let me read from Acts for just a moment. We're about to close. Acts 4, verse 1. Luke says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And when they were brought before the authorities the next day, they were told not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But they said in verse 20, We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop. God's commissioned us to do this. Has, has your employer ever told you to stop witnessing at work? I had an employer tell me that. 
Sure did. But I lost my job over it too, which was okay. But that's what it takes. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was condemned and murdered by the Sanhedrin. Standing there before the 70 members of that ruling body and proclaiming Christ and gave them their history and then he charged them with murdering the Messiah. Told them that they were stiff-necked, uncircumcised of heart and they, they took their hands over their ears and they were grinding their teeth and they rushed at him and they took rocks and began to throw them at him till it killed him. And probably the last blow was when he said this. The scriptures tell us that he looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he prayed for his enemies to forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And then he died. Again, I, I talk about Paul and his being persecuted. Here's your short list. He was persecuted at Damascus, Acts 9.23, rejected by the Jews in Antioch, Acts 13.46. He was stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra, Acts 14.19. He was beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi, Acts 16. He was chased out of Thessalonica, Acts 17. He was chased out of Berea, Acts 17.13. The story goes on and on, and he was eventually beheaded. Ministry can test you. Ministry is difficult. Ministry is humbling. Ministry has daily stress. Ministry can lead to rejection. Ministry can lead to persecution. Ultimately, it can lead to death. So in the words of Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Murray, they all said this, if, you, if there is anything else you can do, do it. And I would add to that, if you're telling me you're called to ministry and there's something else you can do and you're doing it and you're not doing ministry, my conclusion is you are not called to ministry. Because if you're called to ministry, that is what will consume you. Even though it has all of those negative things, that is not everything about it. There are positive things as well. And especially when you see the Word of God change someone's life. Or you see God save somebody. Makes it all worth it to go through what you go through, you know? So you have to give it all you got. You have to live in daily trust of the one who's called you into the ministry. John Brown of Edinburgh, he wrote in the exposition of the epistle to the Galatians this. He said, The Christian ministry, if entered on with appropriate sentiments and prosecuted with conscientious fidelity, will be found replete with difficulties. Its tolls are arduous and unceasing. Its trials numerous and severe. He who would war this good warfare must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The man who assumes the sacred character of a minister of Christ with the honest intention of performing its duties must lay his account with submitting to labors often ill-appreciated, sometimes unkindly requited, and with meeting with trials and afflictions which are the more severe as coming from a quarter from which nothing but support and encouragement had been expected. So I'll end right here and say this. If you have deserted Christ like Mark did, come back. Come back now. You say, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. We're sitting here in church. We're here. No, you know what I mean. You could be sitting here and your heart not in it. Your feet are here. Your body's here. You made it here this morning, but your heart may not be in it. In the words of Chuck Swindoll, he says, it's never too late to start doing what is right. I agree with that. Mark eventually came back. God restored him to himself. And if you're the one who has done that, he'll restore you too. And so instead of being known as a deserter, 
you can be useful for ministry. And so as we conclude and we are reminded again of the title of verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is where it all begins with the gospel. Have you repented of your sin? If you don't repent, you're never going to be forgiven. The path to forgiveness is repentance. So in the words of Jesus found in Mark 1.15, He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And with that note, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word this morning, for the encouragement that we find in it, also the wonderful news about Jesus. And we pray in these coming days as we study this wonderful book that it will study us, it will transform us and grow us in Christ. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity for us to be here today. There are so many people that can't be here physically because they are physically unable. But we've been able to be here and we're thankful for that, Lord. And we pray for those who couldn't be here. And God, we pray that we'll minister to them your word. We pray that you'll use us this week, God, that we'll be faithful as evangelists to proclaim the gospel in our jobs as well as to our neighbors and to our families. But even more important than that, not only proclaim it, but live it. Thank you, Father, for what we learned about John Mark. Thank you that he's no longer a deserter, that he was useful for ministry, and that you restored him. What a wonderful, wonderful story. 